thriving future with me, Hannah Temple. You join me today as I sit at the bottom of my garden in Kent in southeast England in the United Kingdom on an overcast, warm and blustery August day. My dog is asleep on the on her bed behind me and it all feels quite soft and gentle and sleepy. Though as ever I am very very conscious of how different it is at the moment in other parts of the world as my news feeds are filled daily with stories and events from around the world of floodings and fires and boat crossings and wars. So from this soft, warm, sleepy corner of the planet, sending love and compassion and strength to all of you, wherever you are, with whatever you're facing right now. Welcome to this episode where we talk a little bit about the trunk. At the start of the podcast, I shared an outline of a framework that I use to help organisations to really understand what it means to be regenerative. The framework takes the form of a tree and breaks down different aspects of organisational practice and behaviour into five different areas. And in the podcast, woven in between the interview episodes that I'm having with other regenerative pioneers, I'm taking time to offer episodes like this one to introduce these five different areas and the key things that I think characterise a more regenerative organisation. In episode four, we took a look at the soil of the tree, which represents an organisation's grounding and includes elements like the organisation's origin story and history, its fundamental legal and financial arrangements, and its key identifying and commitment statements, like its articles of association or its purpose statement. And we talked about how being a regenerative organisation with regards to these elements means things like investigating and meaningfully remedying any harms caused in an organisation's origins and history. Ensuring that those fundamental financial and legal arrangements that the organisation is built on are built on shared regenerative values. And ensuring that any key commitment statements place a commitment to the greater thriving of life above all other ambitions or aims. In episode seven, we explored the organization's root network, which represents its web of relationships with employees, suppliers, customers, partners, the more than human world. And I talked about how for these relationships to be regenerative, they need to be long-term, reciprocal, diverse, and many. In this episode, we embrace the trunk. Now, the trunk represents a huge range of different elements and aspects of organisational behaviour and practice. In essence, the trunk is the organisation's backbone, 
the core elements that shape how it feels to be within this organization and how it practically operates in the world. It includes many and diverse elements such as the policies and processes that the organization uses to shape its decision making, its communication, its meeting protocols, incentives and so on. It also includes aspects of the nature of the organization's culture and leadership, the level of psychological safety in that organization, the norms, the language. And it also includes things around the nature of the actual physical environment where the organization does its work and much, much more. Now, to help us navigate this really big area, we're going to organize the elements into three key layers, which correlate with some of the many different layers of a tree trunk. The first layer that we'll consider is what's known as the heartwood. Now, in a real tree trunk, the heartwood is the innermost part of the trunk. It plays a really important role in balance, stability and security for the tree. And in our metaphor, the heartwood represents the heart of the organization. And all of those less tangible forces, dynamics, behaviors, that make up how the organization actually feels. It's leadership behaviors, it's culture, it's norms, it's values. They all sit here in the heartwood. The second area we'll look at is what's known as the sapwood. In an actual tree trunk, the sapwood is engaged in the transportation of water and minerals from the roots to the crown of the tree. And in our metaphor, the sapwood represents all of the ways in which the heartwood elements, the culture, the leadership behaviors, the norms, and so on, are actually embedded in the organization. All the ways in which they become tangible and visible and lived. Things like processes and policies and practices. And finally, we'll use the layer of the bark. Now, this is the outermost layer in a tree trunk who's in a real tree. The primary role of the bark is to protect the tree. In our metaphor, this layer represents the actual physical environment in which the organization does its work. The nature of the factories, offices, farms, studios, schools, places of worship, where the organization does its work. Now, although we're going to be talking about the different elements of the trunk using these three layers, heartwood, sapwood, and bark, in reality, of course, they're not separate. They are always shaping and being shaped by each other. The culture and values of an organization shape the processes and practices within them and the physical environment in which they take place. But equally, the values and culture of an organization are always being shaped by those processes and practices and by the physical environment of an organization. That might seem a bit confusing now, but hopefully that will become clearer and clearer as we move through the episode. As usual, 
there is a lot to say about all of these things. So please consider this uh, an overview of some of the key points and not a comprehensive review. Okay, let's get started at the heart with the heartwood. The heartwood is about how it feels to be in the organisation. It's about the organisation's culture, its values, its attitudes, its customs, behaviours, and how they are embodied and lived by the people within that organisation. So we're going to explore what it looks like for the heartwood of an organisation to be more regenerative, looking at the characteristics of organisational cultures and values that really create conditions for the greater thriving of life. We're going to start by looking at values. So organisational values, as I'm sure many of you are aware, are the fundamental principles and beliefs that guide how an organisation lives, its direction and its decisions. They're related to culture, but they are not the same thing. Values underpin culture and they tend to be more foundational and unchanging than culture, which is a bit more fluid and dynamic, depends a little bit on who's in the organisation at any given moment. I've once heard a metaphor which I think is quite helpful that values are more like a bedrock of an organisation, something really, really kind of foundational and unchanging and the culture represents more of kind of the shifting sands above it. Values are also relevant to a whole organisation. So all of its products, its supply chains, its partnerships, etc. And not just the work environment. And when we talk about culture, we tend to more often be thinking about the internal work environment. Whereas values really apply to all of the different organisational aspects and elements and arms. And one more kind of key differentiator between culture and values are that values are aspirational, motivational. They're about what the organisation believes that it should do. And in that way, they're different from organisational personality, for example, which tends to be more descriptive, which says, OK, well, this is kind of how we tend to behave now. Whereas values say, well, this is how we would like to behave. There is not one kind of agreed set of organisational values that are the ones that an organisation needs to hold if it's going to be truly regenerative. But there is a really beautiful and growing body of work from many writers, thinkers and practitioners on, OK, well, what are some of the value areas that seem to be really helpful in guiding organisations towards more regenerative paths? And we've also seen a lot of those through the conversations we've had in this podcast. So on the back of all of those different sources and inputs, I just want to share five, some of the values that I think, for me, tend to show up in the organisations that are being more regenerative in the world. The first of those five values that I'd love to talk about is relationality. Um, and that's one way of describing essentially interconnection, interdependence, interbeing, 
systemic perspective. I'm using the word relationality to kind of bundle together all of that because I think the organizations that I've witnessed be more regenerative in the world are the ones that look at the world through a lens of relationality, through a belief and a recognition that the world is made of relationships, that everything is interconnected, interconnected and interdependent, that every life form on this planet is connected to other life forms and every dynamic on this planet is interconnected to a whole host of other dynamics, that there is no such thing as a kind of an action or a decision or a, an element that is separate, that takes place in a vacuum. Every action, decision, being is affected by and affects other beings in other places and in other times than are immediately obvious. Essentially, these, this value of relationality is rooted in a belief that there is no such thing as I or us, but only we, that everything is a we, that we inter-are. And essentially what I witnessed is that organisations that are rooted in this value of relationality are just much, much better equipped to make decisions and take actions that benefit life holistically and that create far fewer damaging unintended consequences which can emerge when we are unable to recognise the relationship between our actions and decisions and life more broadly. A second value that I think unites more regenerative organisations is something that I'm going to call vulnerability. So for me, I think organisations that really value vulnerability, that put energy into creating environments that are psychologically safe, where people can admit when they don't know the answer, where they can ask lots of questions, where they can have really open and honest conversations about things that don't go well. They can share and give feedback and receive feedback well. These are the organizations that tend to be the places where people can thrive, but also where their true innovation and creativity can really flourish. And so the regenerative causes and missions that those organizations are focused on are much better able to be achieved because they have that, that real breadth and depth of creativity and human possibility behind them. A third value that I would identify is diversity. We've talked before in the Root episode, um, Roots episode about kind of the benefits and importance of having a really diverse network, not only for the individuals within that network, but for the broader purpose of the organisation itself. All of the many, many, many benefits that come from having true diversity of thought incorporated into an organisation's work can have. Um, and I think that that is only really possible if that's held as a real value, that that true, real richness of diversity is only really present in organisations that actually place it as a core value uh, and put that as a really core commitment at the very heart of their organisations. 
they're the ones that tend to actually embody that true diversity and to benefit from the amazing richness that it brings. Also, as we mentioned before, organisations that are genuinely diverse are much less likely to cause or reinforce societal harms for, for different groups and minority groups because they're much more likely to have benefited from the perspectives of people and more than human beings within those groups. Another value that I commonly see across more regenerative organisations is what I'm going to call fluidity. So this value is kind of rooted in an awareness that the only thing that is certain in life is change. That nature, that of course we and our organisations are part of, is never still, is constantly changing. The more regenerative organisations I know tend to be those that have some kind of commitment to being nimble or adaptable or dynamic or fluid and that intentionally try not to create structures or processes that are overly heavy or rigid or unable to change. That gives them the capability to adapt to the circumstances around them without needing to collapse. And finally, for now at least, I can't not mention love. We are in the heartwood after all. Something that definitely marks out the most regenerative organisations I know is a sense that everything that the organisation is doing is coming from a place of deep love for the world and for all of the life in it. A sense that ultimately that is what matters to the organisation most above anything else. So for me, in terms of creating more regenerative organisations, actually this area, the heartwood, but perhaps this value is the most crucial thing that an organisation can pay attention to in order to become more regenerative. It is metaphorically and literally at the heart of the matter because it's really, really hard to cause harm in the world when the place that you're acting from is a place of real love for the world. So it was important that we noted that as one of the core values that I think differentiate really regenerative organisations, that this value is at the heart of its heartwood. But as we said before, values is just kind of one aspect of the heartwood. Uh, another aspect is the organisation's culture, those shifting sands that are definitely shaped by the values, but are also um, different from them. So I do think that organisations that hold the kinds of values that I've talked about tend to see their culture being shaped in, um, in certain ways, but that the way that happens is is actually really varied, that it depends on the organisation in question as to actually how that shows up. But I do think that there are some, some ways in which those values might um, show up in organisations' cultures that, uh, that might feel quite common. One of those things is presence. So I think in more regenerative organisations, you often notice in the organisation's culture a commitment, a space, um, an intentionality to be present, that there is a, a norm 
a, a culture, a practice of encouraging people to allow themselves to be in their bodies, to allow themselves to have room to notice what is going on, to reflect, to not just get kind of swept up in the doing, in the next deadline, in the next fire that needs to be fought, to kind of be able to step back, to witness the bigger picture, to see connections between things, to allow people to be present and not kind of overly lost in, in what's coming next or what's just happened, that there is room. And, and we'll talk a little bit in a minute about the sapwood, about the kind of practices that we commonly see in more regenerative organisations that maybe allow for that presence or encourage that presence. But I would say that is kind of a, a more common characteristic of, of a culture of, of some of these more regenerative organisations. And maybe, you know, sitting alongside that are things like abundance. So cultures of abundance, cultures where it feels like, you know what, we have enough. We have enough time. We have enough resource. We don't always feel kind of like we're working from a place of, oh, my God, if only we had a bit more money or a bit more time or a few more people um, you know, there is a sense that, OK, what we have is what we have and we can work with that and that that will be enough for us to do the important things that we need to do. Um, and and I don't think that's kind of about dismissing challenges or, or the fact that, you know, in, in many ways, um, the organisations that we're often talking about here are, are under-resourced, underfunded, that the systems that we, the kind of macro systems that we're working in don't tend to value this don't as yet kind of channel as many resources in this direction. I don't think it's about dismissing those very real needs, but I think there is something culturally that supports organisations to be truly regenerative that is kind of an acknowledgement that, well, we could always have more. Um, it would always be nice to have a bit more money or a bit more, a few more people, um, but that there's kind of an acknowledgement that what we have now is enough to start, that we can nonetheless begin and do work with what we have now. I think another thing that strikes me about some of these cultures is a sense of playfulness, um, that there is a, a culture of of kind of appropriate creativity and playfulness, appropriate childishness, I suppose, um, an ability to embrace the lighter side of some of this work, which can, you know, in many cases feel very heavy, will often be dealing with really serious or um, really important topics that have a lot of weight to them that maybe have some really important consequences where people may be struggling and suffering really real harms. But nonetheless, I think the, the organisations that are able to kind of step out of kind of just minimising harm and really step into a place of supporting life to thrive are ones that do create a culture where there can be some degree of lightness, where there can be some degree of playfulness, that that allows for um, people to bring in their creativity and also to thrive themselves and not kind of reach a place of burnout and kind of being crushed by the weight of the work that they're doing and so they can't continue. Um, I think playfulness is a really um, common aspect to these, these cultures. And just a couple more. One is is, is trust. Um, I definitely witness uh, that in in many of the cultures of these more regenerative organisations, there is a, a huge emphasis on trust. People are trusted to do their work well, trusted to make decisions, trusted to act in the best interests of the organisation's purpose and mission, um, trusted to kind of act with good intent. 
that that is a, a core aspect of, of some of these cultures um, and that kind of, again, you can see kind of gives freedom for those organisations to then maybe release itself from some of the the traditional ways of working, to release itself from some of the the work that has often taken up a huge amount of energy and time, you know, controlling people, managing people and controlling outcomes. When there is trust, um, it often gives organisations the the space, the room to actually grow, to expand, to fulfil potential in ways that may be more difficult in less trusting environments. And finally, I think something that definitely sticks out in terms of or regenerative cultures is a sense of openness, learning, authenticity, um, a culture where it is okay to, you know, linking up to the value of vulnerability. It's okay to say, you know, I don't understand what that means. Can you say more? Um, it's ex it's okay to say, actually, I think I got that wrong. You know, can we talk about what went wrong there and what I can do differently? So it's a place where there is an, a, a culture of learning where, you know, we aren't just kind of shaming people for having made decisions that didn't work out, where we where we aren't kind of saying, oh, um, you know, you got that wrong and, and you know, you get penalised for that. Um, it's, it's a culture of learning, of saying we want to encourage people to be honest and authentic about their experience so that we can learn from it, so that we can reflect and do it better. Uh, I think definitely that seems to encourage the the creation of organizations and the flourishing of organizations because they're able to um, actually improve, actually learn from the things that that haven't gone well in the past. So I think um, there's a lot more to say about the heartwood in terms of values, culture, norms, uh, and so on. But but I think that that kind of gives us enough to start with in terms of what we really mean by the heartwood and what are some of the characteristics that tend to differentiate these more regenerative organisations from those that are perhaps a little bit further back on the path. Okay, so let's turn now to the next ring in the trunk, which I call the sapwood. And as you'll remember from the start of the episode, the sapwood really refers to all of the practices, policies, processes in which those values and the culture of the organisation is really solidified and amplified and embedded in the organisation through those formalised processes. So this is really everything. Um, there are so many different possibilities and options within this section that it's, it's much too numerous for us to name because essentially this is all of the different areas of organisational practice where there's an opportunity for them to be more or less led by regenerative values. So think about things like annual appraisal processes, procurement processes, product design specifications, audit criteria, codes of conduct, meeting practices, contracts, um, holiday procedures, how hours and wages are allocated and on and on and on. Every single aspect of an organization's activity has generally policies or processes or practices that shape how that activity is done and therefore how aligned or not that activity is with the greater thriving of life. Because all of these processes, practices and policies send signals to people about what matters in the organization and about how they should behave. So aligning these formalized practices, policies and processes with regenerative values 
means that those values are much more likely to be borne out in practice. So if you have a set of procurement processes and procurement decision-making procedures that stipulate that, for example, um, including factors around environmental impact of procurement decisions, social conditions within different supply chains, that these are crucial criteria, um, at least as equal to, if not more than, factors like the price of the good or um, the quality of the product or that kind of thing. So these are the kind, that's just one example of how if you'd shifted a, a procurement process, a, a procurement decision-making criteria process, that can shift the potential for those supply chains to be more or less supportive of the thriving of life. Now, in our discussions here in the podcast, we've heard a few more examples of what other organizations are doing with regards to their SAP word, with regards to the, the policies, processes and practices that they've put in place and how they've aligned them with the kinds of values like we've just been talking about. So I just want to remind us of a few of the things that we've already heard about that some of those organizations are doing to put this stuff into practice. So in our most recent uh, episode, we met Kate from Wasafiri, and she really talked to us about how they at Wasafiri have introduced some really interesting processes around decision making, around leadership, around expenses. So she talked to us about the fact that they have introduced things called decision making domains, uh, which mean that different people are decision makers in different places. They also have things like their precedents, guiding uh, laws, as it were, for people's behavior. Um, they have processes whereby they make a whole host of different information really accessible to everyone. So that she talked about making their financial information really truly accessible so that then people feel equipped to make decisions differently. Um, a whole series of different things that she talked about in terms of those, those precedents, those domains uh, that really help people to behave differently and in line with the values that she talked about that we heard there. And, and certainly I heard her talk about values that link to this idea of fluidity, of being adaptable, uh, of being able to respond well to the external context. Um, and she also spoke about some of the benefits that they've experienced of, of taking on those, that, that, those approaches to those things. When we spoke um, to Cressy from Elvis and Cressy, um, she talked to us about how some of the processes that they've introduced around things like, again, transparency, so open book accounting with some of their stakeholders and partners, also things around how they choose to pay wages. So they've made a real commitment to paying at least living wages across all of their different roles. Um, they've made really intentional practices of generating their own energy and cleaning their own water, which really resonates with their their overall commitments to, to being regenerative. Within the other Dada, um, we spoke to Adib, who talked to us about kind of policies and processes that they have in place around how they work seasonally, the different times of the year when they do different types of work, and how that supports the whole organisation to kind of connect to nature, to feel more balanced, to have a balance of different types of work at different times of year, and to be connected to that, that natural rhythm. At La Junquera, um, our first episode, uh, interview episode, we talked about how they have organized their organizational structure in a sort of modular uh, arrangement. So there is a whole series of different smaller businesses within the organization, which means that they're able to kind of spread the risk and allow them to innovate and explore and be creative without risking 
the whole fate of the organization and the farm. So that allowed them to really embrace a kind of greater diversity of activity, allowed them to be more risk-taking in certain areas, um, whilst making sure that they overall balanced out those four returns that she talked to us about, make sure that they are bringing in all of the different yields that, um, that, they, that are important to them and for their, their own thriving and survival. So they, through that kind of very practical practice of how they've organized themselves, they're really instantiating and supporting the organization's ability to live those values of diversity and live those values of, of flexibility and fluidity. Within Tealco ourselves, we have a whole host of um, practices and policies and processes that support us to live and work in, in more uh, regenerative ways. So, for example, we have a set of principles um, that guide how we work, which include things that feel very, very linked to some of the values that we were talking about just a moment ago. So things like we have principles around trusting one another, trusting one another to make choices in line with the, the principles, uh, but without being told or managed, uh, recognizing that we all take responsibility for our individual and collective health and the health of the organization. Um, we talk about having principles around diversity and that all people are of equal worth, but all people are different. So uh, an encouragement for us to try and create as rich a community as possible and to allow people to really contribute in their own distinctive ways. We also have principles around the fact that we believe that how we work matters as much as the work that we do. So um, we seek to really work and act from love, recognizing that nothing can be created outside until it's created inside first. So we have developed a whole series of practices that support us to work in ways that to us represent the change that we want to see in the world. So things like we have a practice of check-ins at the beginning of every meeting to see where we are and we've introduced a kind of a system so that we are able to gauge with each other what kind of mood we're in, how we're arriving, um, so that we can kind of work with each other as, as human beings and not just as kind of robots doing this work. We have a practice of doing a meditation before we do any facilitated sessions. So whenever we're working with clients, kind of face-to-face, in-person, facilitating workshops and conversations, we make sure to do an, a meditation and an intention setting practice before any of those moments so that we can arrive into those interactions with presence. We also have pieces around language. Language is definitely a tool within this area of, uh, of the sapwood. It's definitely an element of kind of these processes and, and things that can really either embody and encourage your values or not. Um, we really intentionally try to use language that learns from, is respectful of nature and natural processes. So, for example, we talk about having sowing meetings rather than kickoff meetings. We talk about planting seeds and preparing soil. We also have a nutrients policy. Um, so our nutrients policy stipulates where our money can go and uh, says, OK, well, this is what the recognizing that money is a nutrient for our organization it stipulates the different ways in which money can be spent in our organization um, so that it can, as much as possible, achieve its purpose. So beyond spending money on kind of essential backbone infrastructure like our website hosting, our taxes, our insurance and so on, we stipulate that the only other things that our money can be spent on are things like training for our members, 
retreats and time away in nature for, for our members to celebrate work well done and to resource us to be able to do further good work. And things like pro bono or lower rate work for clients that couldn't otherwise afford our services. So that's kind of a, a, another example of how a policy can really help guide behavior within an organization. Within the next episode that comes up after this, we'll also be hearing about the Wales Wellbeing of Future Generations Act. And one of the things that I think is really, really inspiring about that act, among many things, is the fact that they developed a set of ways of working alongside the actual act itself. And that, that piece of the act, those ways of working, really embed the values of that work into practice by including things around long-term thinking and um, including uh, auditing procedures and so on within actually how the Act operates. And this is just literally the tip of the iceberg. There are so many ways in which values and regenerative commitments can be translated and must be translated into the policies, processes and practices of an organisation. So we can think about faith in nature. Um, they have recently been celebrated for a particular approach that they've developed of putting nature on their board. So they have shared open sourced um, the kind of method that they've used to do this. But they now have an individual who represents the voice of nature on their board, which fundamentally changes the process of decision making within their organisation. And that will absolutely support them to make more regenerative choices. We can think of things like incentive structures within organisations. They're another key lever for shaping what is possible and how organisations behave. If you have a sales team that is purely incentivized by getting as many sales as possible, um, the highest volume, the highest uh, number, then it's likely that that will, well, produce waste, for example. There might be a whole host of unnecessary, unpleasant consequences. It can also be, um, I understand, quite an unpleasant experience for the sales teams themselves to have those kinds of uh, pressures and incentives. I know of an organization called Vitso, which is a furniture manufacturer, which supplies small businesses and private customers with, with furniture. And its vision is to manufacture furniture that lasts as long as possible. So its strategy is one of sufficiency, of doing enough and not more. And so to ensure that their sales teams operate in line with that value, there are no commissions paid to the sales team for greater volumes of sales. There are no discounts offered to customers through bulk purchasing discounts or end of season sales or anything like that, because that would fuel unnecessary sales and consumption and waste. Instead, sales teams are encouraged to create long term relationships and to really do high quality sales that they can feel really confident are going to support an organization to use that, man that furniture for as long as possible. Other things included within the Sapwood will be things like trainings, what trainings are given, to whom, how are they, how are they done, how does the organisation understand risk, what kind of criteria are used to, to assess risk um, and benefits, um, what are, to what degree does the organisation consider the risks of not acting alongside the risks of acting, and so on and so forth. This area is truly bottomless, and to be honest, this is where the kind of big regenerative geek in me gets really excited because this is the stuff that actually separates out the organisations that are just talking the talk 
from those that are actually doing something really different from the kind of old extractive business as usual model. This is the stuff that really matters. This is the stuff that shapes whether or not your supply chains are filled with joy and thriving and flourishing or whether they're filled with modern slavery and pollution. This is the stuff that determines whether or not employees feel that they can be their authentic selves or not. So for me, when people claim to be doing something radical or look like they're doing something really regenerative, it's this kind of quote unquote boring stuff that's what I want to look at. This is the stuff that I look to to see, are they actually living this? Because if, if this stuff is not aligned with what the organization says that they care about, well, there's work to be done. Okay, the third and final area of the trunk that we're going to take a look at today is the bark. Now, the bark re represents the actual physical spaces where the organization does its work, its offices, and also the factories and farms, the churches, the homes, the community centers, wherever it is that the organization does its work in the world. That's what we're talking about here. What is the nature of those physical spaces? And there are some really straightforward things that characterize more regenerative approaches to those physical spaces. The first thing is a really basic thing, and it's actually, it's not really about regenerative here. We're talking more about kind of survival. This is a really basic thing. You would think I wouldn't need to say it, but I think I do. Um, so firstly and foremostly, the spaces of a regenerative organization are safe and healthy. There are so many workplaces around the world where people have no clear fire escapes, where people and the environment are exposed to toxic substances, where temperatures are unhealthily hot or cold, where there's no access to clean water or fresh air. This stuff is obviously an absolute minimum. Uh, if we're going to be talking about people and the, and the world and life thriving, it's really important, of course, that the spaces that the organization is working in are not unsafe or unhealthy. Um, so that's kind of a, a basic. If we assume that we do have spaces that are safe and healthy, there are a few other things that I think characterize more regenerative spaces where life can really start to thrive. And these are really two things. Firstly, access to nature, natural sounds, natural light, natural materials, fresh air. And secondly, the incorporation of nature-inspired patterns and principles in, into the design of those physical spaces. Now, why is this important? Well, there is a huge canon of scientific research that now demonstrates that contact with nature and with natural patterns and principles makes us happier it leads to significant physical and psychological health benefits, reduced stress, improved concentration, greater creativity, better overall well-being. It has been proven that people who have good access to nature require less medication and heal more quickly after illness or injury. There are even studies demonstrating that communities that have good access to green space and nature tend to have lower crime levels. It's been demonstrated also that greater contact with nature 
helps us to develop a deeper sense of nature connectedness. Now, nature connectedness is about much more than just being in nature or experiencing natural designs. It's actually about the quality and nature and depth of our relationship with nature and our psychological connection to nature. And when these things are stronger, they've been proven to lead to things like greater satisfaction with life, a greater sense of meaning, and also changes to our behavior, a greater willingness to take action on behalf of the well-being of other beings. And the spaces that an organization creates can either support and encourage greater nature connection or discourage it. Some of the things that organizations do when they're seeking to increase the amount of access people have to nature and their opportunities to connect with nature are things like introducing lots of vegetation and plants into the space, um, running water, having music that mimics natural noises, bird sound or the sound of insects, uh, the sound of wind. Um, things like having a lot of natural light or creating lots of spaces where people can actually go outside, roof terraces, uh, balconies, courtyards, that kind of thing. Even using natural or nature-inspired colours has been shown to have positive impacts on people's well-being. And things like using na natural or nature-inspired materials all of these steps have been shown to have a really positive impact for the people who are working in and around those spaces. But spaces that incorporate more plants, more natural patterns, etc., also tend to be better for life more broadly too. More green walls, more trees, more plants, more spaces left unbuilt upon tend to lead to more habitats for wildlife, more moisture in the soil and air, temperatures that are more friendly to more forms of life. In this area, Interface is probably the best example to bring to everyone's attention through their work with Factory Like a Forest. This was an initiative where they set out to design and build factories that behave exactly like the environments in which they are built. So those factories are designed, or the intention is that they sequester as much carbon, support as much biodiversity, clean as much air, store as much water, etc., as the environments of that space, whether it's a, a desert or a, fact, or a forest or a, a temperate region. So, with regards to the bark, more regenerative organisations are those that pay attention to their physical spaces and use them as opportunities to support the people within them to increase their contact with and connectedness to nature and use them to create ecosystems that mimic the way the natural environment in that area supports the greater thriving of life. Ooh, we did it. I told you the trunk was a big area. <laughs> okay. So after all of that, let's just do a quick recap to close. When it comes to thinking about the internal world of more regenerative organizations, there are broadly three areas to consider. Firstly, the heartwood, the degree to which the values 
and culture at the heart of an organisation really embody a holistic commitment to the greater thriving of life. Secondly, the sapwood. The degree to which the practices, policies and processes that shape the organisation's behaviour reinforce or discourage behaviours that align with regenerative values. And thirdly, the bark, the nature of the physical spaces where the organisation does its work and the degree to which those spaces support greater contact with, connectedness to and alignment with nature. So if you're listening to this and thinking about, okay, well, where can I get started then? You might, for example, want to consider exploring your own organization's values and culture. And there are some amazing leaders out there who specialize in helping teams to connect to and cultivate really regenerative cultures. I particularly want to signal Giles Hutchins and his work here, who I've, I've personally experienced one of his retreats and I can highly recommend him and his work. Secondly, you might want to think about, in terms of the kind of sapwood area, if you're thinking about how aligned your organization's behaviors and practices are with regenerative values, you could just start by picking one or two processes or policies and then exploring how they could be adapted or tweaked to encourage more regenerative practice and make sure that they are indeed prioritizing the regenerative values that you hold. And finally, you might just want to take a look at the physical spaces where you're operating and ask yourself, okay, how could this space provide more opportunities for people to connect with the principles and the ways of nature? And how could this space act more like the natural environment around it? This has been a big episode. Thank you so much for sticking with it and for continuing your exploration of what it means for organisations to be more regenerative and supportive of the thriving of life. We have some amazing episodes coming up. I am really excited about the next episode where we'll be exploring what all of this means for a government. Thank you so, so much for being here and for your curiosity. Until next time.